What's up, everybody? Welcome to the newest episode of Demo Day. I'm your host, Sean Goldfaden, CEO of Coefficient Labs. And on today's show, we'll be interviewing John Frankel, the founding partner of FF Venture Capital. John founded the firm in 2008 and has been a seed and early stage investor since late 1999. Prior to founding FFVC, John worked at Goldman Sachs for 21 years in a variety of roles that involved technology, development, you name it. He worked closely with some of the world's leading hedge fund managers and developed a keen understanding of emerging technologies and portfolio risk return management. On today's show, we cover how to establish a good work-life balance, the important startup qualities that VCs value, and what makes a good investor. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode of Demo Day. John, thank you so much for joining us today on Demo Day. Well, thank you very much for having me. So, John, I think you might be our first official guest from the beautiful city of London. Uh, well, I don't know if you're from London. I know you're from England, but I, I got to spend a couple of years in London. And so welcome to the show. And thank you again for, for jumping on. I'm really excited to learn more about your journey and, and how you've been growing your, your venture capital fund. Well, I, I really appreciate that. Yes, I did grow up in London. Um, and... Uh... Uh, however, I've been in the States now for 30 years, so about half my life. So, John, I start all of our podcasts out with a very similar question, and some of it I feel like I was able to pull from just your overall, you know, thoughts around how far technology has advanced, but, but the question really revolves around your why. Um, you could be doing so many different things with your time. I know that you have, you know, a background in finance, but you know, you've chosen for the last several decades to invest in startups and entrepreneurs. What is it about investing in these sorts of, you know, people that gets you so excited and keeps you coming to work every day? Um, I think I think the question is the right question. And it predicates that the space is exciting and stimulating, a great place uh, to be spending your time, which it, which it really is. Um and the, the, there's a number of reasons sort of behind it. Uh, prior to founding FF Venture Capital, I was at Goldman Sachs for, gosh, 21 years. And the last 11 years on the sales and trading floor, um, uh, covering uh, hedge funds, uh, talking about U.S. shares. And it was, it was a great experience to do that. And I'd always tell the sort of the interns and new people coming on the floor that it was, a, it was a peculiar place. It really was at the far end of many bell curves. You know, no one on the trading floor was, uh, was not driven. No, no one on the trading floor uh, was old. No one on the trading floor was dumb. Uh, no one on the trading floor was poor. It just like was at the you know, far end of a number of bell curves and a very rarefied uh, atmosphere in some ways and very difficult to replicate. And when I left Goldman, I didn't think I'd be able to, you know, be in an environment with as many sort of stimulating and driven individuals. And I was wrong. I think that uh, founders are fascinating. They're, they're unreasonable people. They look to change the behavior of millions of people. And they believe fundamentally when they get started, they're right and everybody else is wrong. And if they're successful, um, they're right and everybody else agrees with them. 
And that's, that's, just fa that's just fascinating. It's great to be able to work with such people, to back them and help them sort of bring about the vision they're looking to bring about. And we're, we're, look, we're, we're, we're in an amazing time. Um, the, it's very easy to forget how many layers of technology we live with and support and what you know something is wow and amazing for about 10 minutes and it just becomes part of the infrastructure mm -hmm. um but take this pandemic if this pandemic had happened in 95 it would have been far worse economically uh we probably wouldn't have known about it in the same way it might have been like uh the big flu pandemic of 67 that no one talks about uh, because there wouldn't have been the visibility and the information and the like. But in reality, the ability for everybody to pick up their laptops and walk out their office and let it grow cobwebs for the next 12 months was something that in 95 was just not possible. I think in 98, and I might, I might be wrong, it might have been 97, I got a cable modem and I was one of 25,000 people in the country who had broadband. So the fact that, that not only Zoom works full screen, high definition video, but they could scale it almost effortlessly is because of layers of infrastructure being built in the interim. Mm. Um, and so we're in the world of a paperless office. Uh, even though, you know, it's kind of funny. In 95, we were talking about the paperless office and didn't have it. And then when we stopped talking about it, we kind of had it. And I kind of feel for certain technologies, when we stop talking about them, they just happen and become part of the infrastructure. So there's a lot of infrastructure, which means companies can grow faster than they grow before, which means dreams can be realized incredibly fast. You know, we invested in a company about seven years ago called Owlet. And this is a Mormon team out of Salt Lake City, a group of young parents who just wanted to reduce the chance that babies die because they're not being monitored. About 4,000 babies die because they're not monitored overnight. And they put, put together this little baby sock. You know, when we invested, it was a circuit board and some uh, um, uh, medical tape. Uh, and today it's a billion dollar company uh, going public uh, via a DSPAC. The ticker will be uh, OWLT. And, you know, they did 75 million in revenue last year, which is a big number. In four years, they think they'll do a billion in revenue, which is a bigger number. And it's, it's an amazing journey. And I look at it and I think, you know, when Amazon went public, they just sold books on the internet. Now, I don't know about you, but of all the things I use Amazon for, books is a fraction of, of, of what one would use it for. And so the ability for these companies to be very high growth and create real opportunities is fascinating. It's great to see this team that started with three or four, and that's hundreds of people, um, you know, monitoring, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of babies' lives. Um, and it, it, it's, it's just so much fun. And that's, uh, and that's one of our 76 companies. So, so let me ask you then a, a question, and I don't know if this is 
a good question because I don't know if there's a good answer, but I'm, I'm curious, like when you meet founding team, uh, like the one you're describing and you see their problem that they're solving and you see the solution that they're creating in your brain, do you jump 10 years out and see, you know, how this is playing out in a public kind of world and like that's what makes you want to invest or do you kind of hone in on the today and sort of this team of three or four people like I said I don't know if it's a good question but I'm curious like when you meet these people do you see the end game or do you get excited about the now so I've never been asked that question before which is kind of ridiculous it's a very good question I wouldn't say 10 years but I think five years forward Hmm. Uh, and I do believe that if you're climbing a mountain range that you start and you see the foothills, you see the hills and the foothills, there may be in the distance some low mountains. And then if you climb those, you'll see the real mountains. So, you know, when I looked at Owlet, to me, it was assuming we get through false positives and false negatives, which we have, you know, would the consumer adopt? Yes. Would this save a lot of lives? Yes. We went seven years from first prototype of car baby seat hitting the market to you cannot leave hostel without one in seven years. Wow. This saves 10 times as many lives. So I could see very quickly just that if all this works, um, this, this just could become part of the infrastructure mm. of how, baby, how babies think about it. And that could be a very big business. And what's interesting is as I say, as you climb the hills, you know, you get to see, as you climb the foothills, you get to see the hills. So at this stage, I look at that company and I go, you know, when you have a newborn, parents are handed the baby, but there's no real manual, right? <laughs> I know this. I have a seven-month-old. <laughs> right. There's no manual. And what I think when you say that to an entrepreneur you know, like Kurt Workman and the team there, they go, okay, let's go and build the manual. So they're building the connected nursery. And, you know, today they have a sock and the cam and uh, they're launching a fetal heart monitor for pregnant um, uh, women so they can see how the baby is progressing in the womb. Uh, They've got a service around helping babies sleep but I can see them building humidifiers and a snoo-like mm-hmm. product and all of these all connect together in the way that your Apple Watch works with, you know, your AirPods and everything else that you have. And I think that is really interesting. When I think who else is doing that, I think about nobody else. And then when I look at it, I kind of go, so they're going to grow revenues between 40 to 80% a year for the next four years as a public company? Like, it's going to be very, very big. This is going to be a very, very big idea. And, you know, I look at it and I go, we're very pleased. We led the seed round. We really like the team and the like. But now, you know, and this is one of the benefits of SPACs. Companies can go public at a billion valuation. They don't have to get to six or 10 billion before Goldman Sachs is willing to take them public or some other large firm. Uh, so they can go public small and then the public can ride it, it up. And I, you know, I look out there and the millions of parents who are going to use this product, if, if just a small percentage say, 
you know, I want to own my 100 shares of Owlet. Uh, this, is, this is going to become like the Peloton of the space. You know, a Fitbit for your baby. It really is. And um, so it, it fascinates me. And, it, you know, it fascinates me because, um, you know, we were there right at the beginning, a team of three people. The idea is fundamentally the same, but now they're getting resources to grow this in a way they've never had. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of, it's, uh, it's, it's just a fascinating place to spend your intellectual capital. Yeah. Now but that's why I do it, you know? Yeah. Now bring me bring me back to early days, John. I, I've it's been well established now that you're a rugby player, not a soccer player. So I I'm I'm uh, on the same page as you there. I didn't realize though that back in when you went to school, that was kind of like almost a decision that you had to make that you had to either go soccer. Oh, or, or oh so, so my the school I went to up to the age of thirteen was a soccer school. So I played soccer. And then the school I went to from the age of 13 to, uh, until I went to university was a rugby school. So we played rugby. Um, so yes, it was very much defined by the school you went to. Um, now, now within that same, you know, same question or along the same lines, I know that you said that you were a big athlete growing up. You, not a, not no, a no, 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 no. I was not a big athlete growing up. <laughs> My brother was. My brother got all the cups. Um, no, I was not a big athlete growing up, but I, I was, I much prefer participating than watching from the sidelines. Mm. And, and so within that regard, how would you describe yourself back then? Would you say that you were, you know, more into academia? Were you into starting businesses? Were you just, you know, hanging out with friends? Like I, I was fairly entrepreneurial as a kid. So, you know, I was a kid who went and bought candy at a store and then, you know, sold it in school. I was that kind of kid. I was the kid who, um, uh, you know, would go down to Spitterfield's Market, mm -hmm. uh, which was the fruit market. In uh, I'd drive down there. So this was in my teen, later teenage years. I'd drive down there and fill the back of the cart with strawberries and then go and sell them door to door. Um, that, you know, I, I definitely entrepreneurial. I was not considered academic, but I did very well in exams. I did terribly in classwork. My teachers hated me because I kept on asking questions because um, I didn't understand how things sort of fitted together, um, which disrupted the class a lot because I don't think the teachers really like people asking questions. So I was very inquisitive. Um, not, I would not describe myself as academic, though I did end up going to Oxford so I must have had some capability. I did very well in exams, uh, to the surprise of my uh, teachers. With, um, with regards to your entrepreneurship, do you recall it being driven by either your parents that were sort of like, you know, saying, oh, John, like you should do X, Y, and Z, or did it come from something more within? Like, what was the impetus that sort of got you to want to make your own money or, or sort of uh, go out on your own and sort of, uh, you know, do things that weren't like what all the other kids were doing? I don't know. I think a lot of it's by osmosis. Um, if you're familiar with the term, I'm very much a lateral thinker. Hmm. Um, a little bit. So I reach conclusions and then people say, explain yourself. And I go, I don't know. So then I make shit up and then they go, you made shit up. I go, yeah, I made shit up because you wanted me to try and 
explain to you how I got there, but I don't know how I got there. That's just a <laughs> it was terrible. It's terrible classwork in math because I would just get the answers and then they say, show your workings. I go, well, there weren't any. Um, you know, you know, I, I could do some of this sort of linear algebra stuff in my head. Um, but it, in an English school system, not well appreciated. So I was never high in classwork. Um, but again, when I got to the exams, I kind of got the answers. Uh, what so, was it about Oxford that, that drew you in? Is it because you knew that if you went to Oxford, it would create a different life for you? Or was there like, uh, you know, any particular reason that you wanted to go there? I will give you the short form of the story. Okay. <laughs> um, I could do math, but do not, did not enjoy it. Do not enjoy it. Give me a math problem. It's boring as hell, but I can do it. Um, and I couldn't write. Terrible. I'm terrible with languages, you know. I'm like Engli English is a second language, but I don't have a first language. <laughs> and so I came to the conclusion, um, an Oxford, sorry, the English system is, is very focused. Um, you know, whereas in the, U the US, you do these modular things, you do things from broad areas, and the UK is very focused. And so I said, I decided that when I went to university, I wanted to study mathematics and philosophy. On the very complex perspective that if I, if I could study philosophy, I'd have to write essays, so I'd have to learn how to write. And it might enable me to explain things to people better if I understood um, philosophical and logical constructs. And I do math because I can, so that would be, that would kind of get me in. And so the, in, in the UK, they have the, you take your A-levels, I got, you know, results that surprised me. Again, better exams and classwork. And so I called up the person who had the lovely title of a joint matric I was going to go to I think Manchester to study this but the best place in the country was Oxford so I called up the person with the title of um, uh, matriculator in the joint on the subjects of mathematics and philosophy and o Oxford is a federated system I called him up and I said can I come to Oxford this year he says, well, it's not really my job, but you know, if you want to drive up in the summer, no one's really here, but I am, you can come and talk to us. So I go and talk to him and give him my spiel. He said, well, it's really the admissions tutors. So he called round, no one's around. On his seventh phone call, Wilson Sutherland at New College answered the phone. And he said, well, send him over. So, you know, I wondered, and, and you know, this was pre-Harry Potter, but imagine going through Harry Potter-like streets I, you know, I remember going, you know, finding, eventually finding New College, going into New Quad, um, going to his staircase, going up, you know, two, two flights and knocking on his door and saying, you know, and he said, come on in. I go in, I give him my spiel and, you know, I don't want to wait another year and take a, uh, an exam like everyone else. Is there any way I can just come up this year? And he said, well, we got six places and four allocated and one, we've got someone wavering on us, and the other one, quite honest, we're wavering on them. But if I have a space, I'll give you a call and you can come and interview. Wow. 
So a week later, I got a call. I went up. I interviewed. A week later, I got a phone call. You're in. Now, my high school was very upset because no one gets into Oxford like that. So they were sure, you know, uncle whoever had, you know, paid someone off or something. But it really wasn't. It was just literally the naivety of a 17-year-old, you know, not knowing that you couldn't say, hey, can I just come up? So I went to Oxford for three years, which was a blast. And, you know, in those days, you went for three years, you got a bachelor's degree. And then if you manage to not die four years later, it magically becomes, but you have to pay five pounds for it, a master's degree. So I have a master's from Oxford. And it was a great time, a great time, because Oxford's one of those universities, once you get in, as long as you don't commit suicide, die, or um, go insane, you're going to get a master's degree. So, you know, you've, you had a chance to really study things as opposed to worry about your grades. Mm. In fact, and, no one ever worries about grades at Oxford. And, and when you were amongst your peers back, what year was it when you were, when you were like into uni? Uh, so 79 to 82. And it was, sounds like a long time ago, but yes, it yeah, is long ago. Yeah. But like when you were there, was there an air of like the internet is coming or like, like was there this, not, not that the internet was coming, you know what I'm saying though, but like, like was I mean, there, yeah. So, I mean, basically all, all essays were handwritten, but my handwriting was terrible. So I learned to type. So I typed my essays, which was unusual. I learned to touch type and I thought programming might be useful. So I learned Pascal. I can't remember what on earth I did in Pascal. I remember in high school, I programmed some stuff, for my A-levels and basic, just some linear programming, um, uh, but linear interpolation. But, it, it, you know, it's it, 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 it wasn't like the Internet's coming or that kind of stuff. I really didn't see the Internet until 90. 394 when I was at Goldman and someone calls me over and say, hey, look at this. I can see the web or on the computer on this screen. And, you know, it was in a browser and there wasn't even a back button. Uh, at the time I was in um, uh, Prime Brokerage, which is a, a service that we provided to hedge funds to help them run their back office and lend them money. And I remember going to see the technologist at the firm who was responsible for a project of us building all these new systems. I remember going and seeing him and I said to him like, hey, rather than this like building this application we're putting on everyone's machines to reconcile to us, what if we like got them to upload files to our server and then we gave them an application, this mosaic thing where they could then reconcile in there. And then we wouldn't have to worry about what other programs they have and which version of Windows and stuff. I remember him saying to me, like, you know, look, this internet's a plaything for you. This is real business. And no, that's not how the world works. So, yeah, I mean, paradigm shifts really are very, very difficult for people. They're difficult. You know, when you think about this pandemic, I got concerned in January and I tried to explain to people and no one would, no one would listen to me. They're like, you're insane. That's not going to happen. I'm like, okay. And they, it was just too exhausting to explain to people that maybe, um, you know, we were going to hit a global pandemic and once in a hundred 
year kind of event. Um, and now it takes too much energy to explain to people it's basically over. Now, I may be wrong. There always can be a variant of this or that. But sounds that, you know, you're just seeing exponential decline. I think Texas yesterday had zero cases. The UK one day last week had zero cases, zero deaths. It's, it's like, it's kind of amazing, but that's what exponential decline's like. And people like to think linearly. So if I had any advice for anybody to think about how to do well in this world, learn how to think exponentially. So, so John, I know you mentioned, and we certainly don't have to, to talk about it if you don't want to, but I, I, I know that like crypto is becoming at least part of the conversation. And, you know, there's like, uh, I remember you saying something to the effect of, you know, you're not exactly like, um, and I don't want to put words into your mouth of what, what you said or didn't, but I guess, you know, from my perspective, I would have imagined that you would have been like more, um, I, I guess, like, like you would have been more bullish on it because of that sort of thought process where it's like you've been through these sorts of like cultural changes before you, um, you know, I, I don't know, I'm curious, like if you want to talk about your perspective, I'm, I'm very curious on it. Yeah, so look, so we always draw a box around ourselves in some way. Hmm. Everyone and, is you know what you're saying? And you're like, I live in New Jersey and that's my box, so where else am I going to move? Or I work as an accountant somewhere. Let me go and look at other firms I can work as an accountant. So you always draw boxes around yourself. And, you know, I'm the same. So as an early stage venture capitalist, I've avoided crypto. Mm. because I haven't really seen a solution that ain't using crypto that is 10 times better or one-tenth the price of doing something. Now, that will come along. Um, you know, I've recognized that you can certainly invest, you know, over the years, we could have invested in crypto exchanges and the like, but then that predicated that crypto would last as a meme more than 10 years or so. Mm. Um you know, today it is, it, uh, you know, to date, it has been incredibly useful to do pseudo anonymous transactions, uh, to try and be under the radar. I'm not sure you really are, to uh, move large sums of money cross border uh, short term, and to um, teach millennials how to trade technically. But the fundamental reason to buy crypto is because someone else is going to buy it. And that is a momentum game. And at my core, I'm value and growth, less momentum. Mm. Now, I can talk philosophically all of this, but if I put a million dollars into crypto a decade ago, it would be, be a lot of money today. <laughs> You'd be exponential. So, you know, and, and that's absolutely the case. I also know that with the crypto meme that uh, it gets converts but it doesn't get deconverts. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult for people to deprogram out of it. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that as a momentum play, um, you know, but owning crypto makes a lot of sense until you run out of a marginal buyer. Now, uh, Stanley Druckermiller referred to crypto as a, um, a solution in search of a problem. And now he's thinking maybe the problem is all of this government printing, and that's the place you put money. But I mean, ultimately, if I have crypto, 
there's there's two things that worry me about it. One is the lack of surveillability. Mm-hmm. So someone can tell me this is how the rule set works, and I can trust them. That doesn't mean someone else couldn't, I don't know, go into my wallet and take my money. For sure. And we've seen cases like that over time because people didn't really understand it. And ultimately, it's a string of numbers. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but the safest place to store a string of numbers on is probably on a piece of paper, not on a computer, and probably the piece of paper fragmented. them. It's just kind of weird. And it's that kind of weird that gets me. I know that over the last you know, three plus thousand years, you could have taken an ounce of gold and buried it in the ground. And if you dug it up any time during those 3,000 years, you could have spent it to get a nice suit mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. really nice dress. It's kind of like held its value. And I just don't see crypto in that same kind of concept. Yeah. Now, you know, it's, you know, and then there's, there's more arguments around it, but I'm really waiting for projects where it is both necessary and sufficient. It's sufficient for a lot of things, but where is it necessary as well? And where does the end solution end up being 10 times better? And I've tried talking to people in the space, and I really haven't got a good answer to that. But again, you know, I'm clearly not right because I'm not a crypto billionaire. Mm-hmm. And if I'd taken a different stance, I could have been. So, so there is that. Uh, no. But in my box as an early stage venture capitalist, we really haven't seen, you know, opportunities to build companies using crypto yet. Yet, right. And, and we're waiting for what you might call that Netscape moment. And given the amount of capital, liquidity and intellectual capital there, Hopefully we will. Maybe it's Web 3.0 or Web 4.0 or Web 76.0. But, you know, crypto is going to be around for a long time because there's a lot of wealth and a lot of very smart people in it. I just hope they come up with, you know, that Netscape moment where it actually becomes functional and useful, not a non-intellectual curiosity. It seems like you're also the sort of person that is not in any sort of like like rush to have like your ego satiated around it where like I remember you saying when you're in school you would just keep asking lots of questions lots of questions lots of questions until you feel like it's the time to pounce and then you'll pounce and so no one is like pushing or like changing you're just still in a like a um curiosity mindset it seems like right but but again if I if if we ran hedge funds we might well have had a crypto hedge funds but we Mm -hmm. run early stage venture capital which is long liquidity periods you, you know, I have a fundamental belief that everything is a fad. Everything has a beginning, a middle, and end. Telegram was a fad. Telegrams. I remember going to weddings and people would read out telegrams. I don't think they do that anymore. <laughs> um, so everything is a fad. The car is a fad. At some point, there won't be cars. There'll be something else, right? Um, and so I just don't know how long this fad will run. You know, if it's going to run 100 years and there's plenty of time, to make investments in and around the space. But I just don't know how long that's going to be. Um, and if your objective is, is to make money irrespective of the vehicle, there's a lot of money to be made trading around this. As I say, you know, the technicals are fascinating and it does respond a lot to technicals now. And you're getting more and more professional players in. Um, and, you know, even though whatever it is, a couple of trillion, that's a fraction versus, you know, other markets. Mm-hmm. So I can, I can see that. 
And then, you know, whenever I start getting tempted to say, maybe I should just buy some and trade and stuff, I think about, um, you know, all of the uh, awful things it's being used for, you know, drugs and uh, uh, illegal illegal black market stuff. Um, And I think of all of the criminal activity that it, it helps. And, you know, there's all this argument around energy, but you know, if you care at all about global warming, it is a lot of incremental energy that, you know, really could be used for other purposes. So, you know, I just don't feel good about it. Yeah, it's not it's not right yet. But you're yeah, it sounds like you're not like, uh, shooing it away forever. It's just at the current moment, there's not a solution that makes sense for a, a real sustainable business, not not just like a fatter. Well, I mean, there may well be, I just don't know. I mean, I keep looking. I'm a student of the marketplace, you know, good Lord. If I ever think I'm right about something, then I'm probably wrong. (laughs) Right. So John, once you got out of Oxford and you, you know, um, uh, like uh, essentially, did you stay in Europe for the, for, you know, for that time period after? Oh oh, yeah. No. So, so I was at Oxford and, you know, like a lot of other students had no idea what I should go and do. So I go to the career center and they say, ah, you don't know what you want to do. You should become a chartered accountant. And little did I know they say that to 80% of people. But I, so I toddled off and I looked at, you know, accounting firms. I joined a firm called Arthur Anderson isn't around anymore, uh, which is a story in and of itself. Uh, but I qualified as a chartered accountant in three years. I was there four years. I put my head above the parapet and said, like, the partners and the managers here, do I aspire to be like them? No. Do I think they're working on interesting stuff? No. So why am I now staying here? I got, you know, I'm qualified. I can always fall back and be an accountant, you know, put food on the table. Um, and the knowledge was very helpful. Uh, so I, I applied six different places. I got four job offers. One of them was from this firm that I'd never heard of called Goldman Sachs. And, you know, there's a friend of mine at our friends who said, that's the one you want to take. They're very big in the States. And so I joined Goldman and I was, you know, a dozen jobs, 21 years. And they sort of moved me back and forth across the Atlantic for, you know, various reasons. You told a story once about, I can't, I, I believe it was one of your mentors at Goldman Sachs was joking about how you know, some of the younger interns, maybe we're talking about like work-life balance. And he said something to the effect of, you want work-life balance? I'm like, I go to the gym once a morning. Like, that's what I consider. Well, the, well the, the, yeah, the, the, this was a guy called Ed Spiegel, who was just a real character. I mean, Ed, Ed was a salesman and he would call up some institution and he wants to speak to the guy, you know, the PM running, $20 billion, right? So Ed knew how to get him. He'd call up, you know, his assistant, who he knew, and he knew her by first name. So he'd call up and go, you know, Monica, hey, it's Ed here. Hey, I'm calling for my helicopter. Can you put me through? Because, you know, I, you know I'm not going to have a good signal for what. He was just making that up. And then he'd get through and he would, you know, pitch the idea. And he would say, look, do me a favor. Just, just put it through. Put the order through the desk here, you know, for political reasons, it'll be good. He was just a great salesman, a great guy. And he retired as I joined the sales desk. And I remember him kind of presenting to the team and having retired from Goldman, 
he said, well, you know, now I've you know, got much better work-life balance. Uh, I go to the gym for an hour in the morning before coming in the office five days a week. That was, that was him in retirement, working at Goldman five days a week. So, yes, uh, yeah, I have been surrounded by workaholics, and I guess at some level I'm a little bit of a workaholic myself. But um, And so I actually wanted, I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, I feel like there – well, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but it seems as though there's almost like the those polar sides of the coin where it's like hustle at all costs, you know, work at all costs. And then the other is you have, you know, work-life balance and everything is about balance and flow. Um, you know, w- what is your perspective on quote unquote work-life balance? And and I don't know if, if you have a, a, a said perspective, but when you're talking to early stage founders and they're talking about work-life balance do you find that to be like oh these people are in tune with their surroundings and what makes them happy and what they need or do you find that to be more of like a red flag i it's really not a topic of conversation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but 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 i I will tell you this that when you think about these kinds of things you have to make certain assumptions about your life so you, you've got to assume either you're going to live a long life, you're going to live a short life. Hmm. I assume I'm going to live a long life. Doesn't mean I will, but that's my working hypothesis. So I'm going to live a long life. I want to be respectful to myself when I'm older. So I was going to say in my 60s and 70s, but I'm 60 now. Um, but I want to be respectful. You know, when, when you're a kid, you know, don't abuse yourself with drugs and alcohol if you think that's disrespectful to you when you're older. Don't do sports to excess when you're younger so that you've got aching bones when you're older. So moderate what you do and just be respectful to yourself. In the same way, you know, Arthur Anderson uh, worked crazy hours and Goldman likewise was pretty crazy. But during that period, um, you know, I got married at a young age. I was very fortunate. I met my wife uh, before I went to university. Um, and we continuously dated through then, but I got married at 22, um, which seems to be young even now. Um, but we, you know, we have five kids, which is wonderful. And so to have a large family, I think it's an amazing thing. And if you do it early in life, also amazing. And so, you know, now we've got, you know, seven, eight grandkids. We've got a few more on the way this year. Um, and I think that's wonderful. And, you know, in that sense, you think about work-life balance, being, resp- you know, having enough time to have a family when you're young so that you can have all the rewards when you're older is really amazing. And shortchanging yourself on, th- on that part of your personality and your life and the like I think is a mistake. The other thing I think is a huge mistake is people saying I'll delay having kids. Mm. I think you want to have kids as early in life as you can and enjoy them as much as you can through the various stages. Young kids are amazing. Um, You know, uh, uh, eight-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 20-year-olds, you know, they're all amazing. It's all great to all different stages of life. And, you know, now we're blessed to have grandkids and 
you know, and that that's that's a wonderful thing. And if you if you live a long life, I think that's a nice dimension, you know, to have to your life above and beyond building, you know, a widget or software company that does great things as well. So to me, that's part of work-life balance. But yeah. saying, hey, I gotta go to the gym so I look good, maybe, or I gotta go to the gym so I'm healthy, probably better. But you know, just it's like that that to me is is the work-life balance. And it's difficult because you have to think in long periods of time. But it compounds, right? It's it's a compounding, it's an exponential dynamic. Again, people really don't think about it. like you should put money in your IRA at the earliest age, and it it really makes a difference when you want to come and retire how much money you have. Yeah. Um now, now, when when you think about, you know, you you yourself said I'm a like a self-proclaimed workaholic, or you know, when when there's many people that love the work they do and are passionate about the work they do and would even consider themselves to be, you know, big-time workers, has there been anything that you found to help offset or balance yourself out? Um, you know knowing that you're not just going to stop working one day, that's just kind of part of your persona. Is there anything else that you found to be a good level setter for you and, and maybe others that are very like high intensity workers, things that work yeah. for you? I mean, the, the obvious thing and pretty much the plot of a lot of movies around this is just listen to the people around you. Hmm. So if they need help, they need time, whatever, then that's where you shift your focus. You know, and so I've always been listening out for that. Um, you know, I, you know, things like when I was a Goldman, and again, the hours were ridiculous, but I took every single day of vacation I had at Goldman uh, because the vacation time was my kids' time. You know, so, so you, you, you be respectful when you try and balance it. Um, um, but, you know, it's, it's 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 a it's an interesting dynamic um for me it's it's really what keeps me going uh and i think it keeps me young all mm -hmm. of the intellectual challenges that we have doing what we're doing um and you know venture capital itself it's a fascinating business because you, 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 you know, you're backing founders who are generally very poor. And if they're successful, they generally become very rich. <laughs> and, you know, there are people, say, in their 20s who grow and mature as individuals and what they do in life through into their 30s. So or 30s to 40s or whatever. Um, you know, you know, Kurt Workman, who's the CEO of, of Outlet, and you know, now a public company going public through a DSPAC with Sandbridge. Yeah, you know, I think I saw something that says he's 31. I mean, like, that's amazing. Wow. Be the CEO of a public company, one of the highest growth public companies out there, and he's kind of 31. And he comes over incredibly well. And I might have the age wrong, and Kurt, I apologize. Um, if I'm wrong, it's just a number that I think I saw on uh, some report on the company. Now, now, John, you like, you know, going from accounting, 
then going to Goldman, you are living a life very rooted in finance and, and in the world of, you know, finance in general. But at some point, you started to make a shift from what you were doing into a world of technology and startups. Was there a story or was there something that happened at Goldman that started the process for you of your transition? Well, I think, I think there's a couple of things. I think if I have to describe the kind of investing I like, it's growth at a reasonable price. So I like companies that grow a lot because that solves valuation through the cycle. Um, uh, and so, and that informs the companies we invest in. We tend to invest in companies with business models, with revenues that grow. You know, Q2 last year, our companies were doing about a billion in revenue run rate, growing about 30% year over year. Not bad when the economy is cratering that your companies can grow at 30% year over year. Mm. So, you know, you know, being very thoughtful about avoiding cyclicality in the portfolio and how we look at stuff. Um, I was always an early adopter. I remember um, May 20th, 1996, I think it was, is when the Palm Pilot came out. And I, I bought one and, you know, it's, I don't know if you remember this little device about the size of an iPhone now, obviously a little thicker, the screen awful. Um, and it had a little stylus and it could be your dress book and it could be, um, it wasn't even your phone at that stage, uh, your calendar and your to-do list. That's all it was. It was a personal information manager or a PIM. I remember going to see the partner at Goldman I reported to and said, you're going to see me carrying this little computer in my pocket here. I'm sorry. I know it's kind of geeky, but I think over the next few years, everybody's going to have one. I think it's sort of 10, 15% more efficient than writing stuff down on paper. He kind of looked at me like I had two heads and that was kind of fine. But I've always been an early adopter of stuff. And so I think that... Um, uh, you know, it, as I got into the early 2000s, I just looked around at Goldman and said everything I did was high beta. But investing in startups was low beta and was um, uh, no daily mark to mark. So no real distraction from what I was doing in my day job. And so I started investing in startups. And by the time I left Goldman in 08, I'd made more money on a realized basis as an angel. I had worked with Goldman for 21 years. And kind of said, maybe I shouldn't be spending 2% of my time working with startups. Hmm. You know, if I work 100% of the time, probably the delta is bigger than, you know, what Goldman would pay me to be there, which it kind of ended up being. John, what matters more as a very, very, very early angel investor? Is it the groups and the people that you're hanging out with? Or is it your ability to assess very early stage companies before they've popped. Does, does that make sense? The question? No, it's a, it's a good question, but it's also a terrible question. No one, <laughs> no one knows. This is just a weird business. When you run a hedge fund, do you know how much money you made yesterday? You know how much money you made this morning? You can see the money being made or not made on a mark to market basis in the liquid market. We have no idea what our positions are worth. I mean, we come up with valuation. We use last round. We use comparables. But it's really marked to myth. And so, you know, against that, when you're working, you know, you have no idea. You invest in the company and it does amazing for 10 years. And then in the last month, they trip over their shoelace and they go bankrupt. 
Were you a good investor? Were you a bad investor? Right? You didn't make money, so you're a bad investor. Did you have any in? Was even though you made all the right decisions all the way through? So you know, it's really tough to know. Um, it's it's there's no feedback. I kind of say to know if you're good at this business, you really won't know until you retire, and and then maybe not. You know, it's there's just such a tale, and it's all. Um, uh, it's a power curve distribution of returns. And so, you know, they, they're just on averages. It's, it's tough to know. I will tell you this. We like to invest in companies we're passionate about. We like to invest in companies that have business models and in teams that we think are really special. Um, but I'm not sure that's much different than anyone else will tell you. You know, we look for secular growth. We love growth because it solves a lot of problems. At the moment, we're in a world of high multiples. If multiples half, you know, in two years, our company should be back to the same place because they can grow. They can double in two years kind of thing. And, and when you invest in startups, are there specific types of verticals that you like try to stay within? Or do you have a fairly like broad thesis? What, what, what tends to be the right fit uh, for FF? The underlying thesis is growth that doesn't depend on the economy. Mm. And so if you look at areas of drones, robotics, um, applied AI, fintech, that really fits that. And we have a lot of exposure there. Um, you know, we, we have some crazy companies. We've got a company delivering food by drone. We have another company that has uh, building drones that are 80 to 100 foot wingspan that go and sit in the stratosphere for weeks or months at a time. You know, it's, you know so just kind of crazy stuff. We have another one that, that does real-time surveys for mining construction. You go into FinTech, we're in StockTwits, which is the leading um, uh, place to talk about stocks and crypto. Um, uh, we're also in Rhino, which has been the leader of replacing uh, security deposits with an insurance product, which is just kind of amazing. Uh, Owlet, which is this little baby sock. Uh, Secure, which is digital ID, and they have contracts where they get paid millions of dollars uh, helping banks identify their customers, uh, and not just banks, but uh, very broad. Um, you know, we're in Indiegogo which is the world's largest crowdfunding platform and has done so much good for the world. We're in Omaze that works with celebrities and charities um, to do really interesting sweepstake campaigns mm -hmm. and is growing just like a weed. I mean, it's just a massive company. If you haven't seen that George Clooney um, skit, which is hilarious, go to omaze.com slash Clooney. Uh, it's really, it's, it's, they put out great content and it's for good causes, uh, in this case, the Clooney Foundation. Um, you know, so, and as I say, there's 74 companies. So we, we just got some really fascinating ones under our belt. Um, and it's fun. You know, it's, it's fun working with now, Do we get, are we right all the time? Good Lord, no. <laughs> but we try to be right. We try to be more right um than the average and about half of our seed funded companies go on to raise a series b which is about five times the average in the industry 
And we think if you're running at five times the average, you're probably doing something right. But, you know, but it's taken us 12 years of 13 years of data to, to kind of think, well, kind of what we're doing is probably on the right path. And then, John, when it comes to the stage and sort of like the average check size, do you guys kind of fit at, at I know, like seed and pre-seed and post, like there's a lot of names now for like the different stages. Forget the name. We like to cut a check of three to 700,000 Okay. And for 10% of a company. Got it. Got it. Okay. You, you, yeah, I expect, you know, you can call that, you know, the mustard round, if you want. <laughs> I mean, I really don't care. You know, call it the apple round. Um, but that, but that's kind of like where we, and we really like to help the companies become real businesses. That's our objective. And uh, that's, that's what we work on. John, this was uh, an amazing episode. I thank you so much for spending your time with us today on the show. And uh, I'm really, really excited to, you know, launch this episode. And for anyone that wants to learn more about FF Venture and, you know, you and, and get in contact, what's the best place to connect with you? So ffvc.com is our website. We have a series of newsletters that you can become part of our community there. We organize two to 300 events every year. Uh, I'm very reachable via Twitter. So John underscore Frankel. Um, and I try not to be too controversial. Um, and, um, you know, so, so, you know, those are good places uh, to reach out. Um, uh, and look, you know, I think people have to understand that we are just incredibly fortunate to be alive now and with the tech stacks that we have, it's, it's an amazing world. And they, people should just feel good about that. I mean, look at this vaccine technology. You know, it was designed in the weekend, has ended a pandemic in a way that if it was hit in 95, would never have happened. I mean, that's amazing. It's a great time to be alive. Absolutely. And, and so understand that we haven't invented everything. There's a lot more fun stuff coming. It's a great time to be involved in this space. And, you know, we want to do what we can to help move that ball forward. If people have great ideas, track us down. And, you know, we'd love to talk to them about them. Uh, amazing, John. Everyone, John Frankel from FFVC. Go check him out. Thank you so much, John, for joining us today on Demo Day. Not at all. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And for everyone at home watching, thank you guys so much. I'm Sean Goldfaden, CEO of Coefficient Labs. This is Demo Day. Thanks, guys. Peace.